I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. And Christian, as they say at Boeing, when one door closes, another door opens. <laughs> yeah. You see where they, they fired uh, the guy in charge of the 737 MAX program? Yeah, I saw the headline. They're yeah. not saying fired. They're saying they have accepted his... You know, departure, but I, I kind of think it was probably a firing. Well, like um, you said, when do- one door closes, yeah. another one opens. <laughs> You'll never hear that. You'll never hear that little uh, nugget Ooh, the same way again. That's nice. Boeing <laughs> announcing the head of the company's 737 MAX program is leaving the company. I wonder if he's leaving on, you know, on the ground or if they took him up in a plane. But anyway, um, he's out 18 years. I was trying to think, like, I don't know how old this gentleman is, but... Presumably, he will now have to go get another job. What will that job interview be like? You know, like when they ask you why you left the previous company? That is going to be rough. Well, we had a difference of opinions. They had a different vision for bolts than I did. So anyway, he's out. He's uh, on his way out. We're kind of waiting to see... um, it's been reported and retracted a number of times. Uh, it looks like after Saturday, when they have the South Carolina primary, it looks like Ronna McDaniel will be out as the chairman of the Republican Party. And as you know, Donald Trump has already said publicly who he would like it to be. There's a, a guy in North Carolina that he would like to be the new chairman of the RNC. Ronna McDaniel has lost every election for which she's been responsible. She's, by every metric of a chairman of a party, she's a failure and an excuse maker on a grand scale. Just, she's a, she's, you know, like an ATM machine of excuses. Um, but they're talking about this other guy and it's traditional when you, when, when you have a presidential candidate or a, a sort of a leader of the party, uh, it's very, very common for that person to kind of install or impose their choice, their person on the chairman's job. And Trump inherited her, but I think is going to move on from her uh, after Saturday. That's what it looks like. And they're also talking about Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law, uh, as uh, deputy chair of the Republican Party. Now, you might think that's nepotism, like, oh, sure, you know, yeah, you put your daughter in there. But I was reading what she's saying. I want to, I want to share this with you because I found this very interesting. She did an interview with the Epic Times. And she actually said, if, if she gets to be the deputy chair of the RNC, Laura Trump, who we've had on the show a couple of times, very nice person, seems like a very smart, very capable person. But anyway, she actually said this. We will have the biggest legal ballot harvesting operation this country has ever seen. And I have been waiting, you know this, you've heard me say this, I've been waiting for somebody in the Republican Party to go, you know what, if we can't change the rules that Democrats imposed in 2020, then we need to play by those rules. I mean, look, you've heard me, a pox on both their houses, but the Republicans need to be competitive for this whole facocta system that we have to work. And they're not. They didn't fight the rule changes. They accepted the COVID 
excuse, the dog ate my homework. They got rolled over in 2020. All the complaining and challenging and disbelieving of the election results is meaningless if you let yourself get mugged in an alley. And they did. The Republicans did. They weren't ready, and they, they got mugged. Since then, they've failed to change the rules back to pre-COVID conditions. They've failed to call out what happened, mostly. There's a few that have done it, and, and you can point those out to me, but it doesn't change the fact that most of them have not. And they have never really figured out how to live in this new world where uh, voting is so different and uh, where the parties have to go out and pretty much um, create demand for their, for their candidates. She seems to get it. It seems for a long time, she said, like the Democrats have been playing chess and we've been playing checkers. Her goal for the Republican Party, she said in the interview, is to be the opposite, to be steps ahead of them on our toes and ahead of the game. This is the woman that's married to the president's, uh, the former president's son, Eric. She also said that Republicans need to be urged to vote early, not just on election day. And the RNC needs to start training and placing poll watchers nationwide. It needs to be a primary effort. They don't just stand in the background and kind of keep an eye out and look around for things. They physically count how many ballots are coming in and how many ballots are going out, said Laura Trump. Now, again, she's only saying these things. She hasn't done any of them, but it's music to my ears just to hear somebody saying it. I thought this was interesting, too. Robert Kennedy Jr. did an interview with Adam Carolla, who has a podcast. And he made an observation about voting that I had not heard before. First of all, he he says we should do away with all the other forms of voting and have voting on Election Day, make Election Day a national holiday, so the only thing you have to do on Election Day in November is vote. You have nothing else on your plate. You have nothing else in the way. You just vote. And we get the results that night, and we don't have days and weeks later. They're counting and finding and what have you. He also he says, if we're the country that can put people on the moon, why can't we invent a voting machine that is so sacrosanct and foolproof that people will believe the results? This is what he said. Take a listen to... Robert Kennedy on uh, on the Adam Carolla podcast, cut number four. What's your take on mail-in or ballot harvesting? Or I, I feel like most people that I speak to just go, why can't we just have election day? It's a holiday. You don't have to go to work. All you have to do is vote. One day we get the results that night, and we don't have to worry about a new batch coming in. And, 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 and any of the negative side effects that come along with some of these other ways, modalities. This is Adam Carolla's setup. But I, question. I've heard arguments on both sides, and I don't know where you come down. Here's Kennedy's Well, answer. I mean, you know, my initial uh, argument would be that you should encourage everybody to vote by making it as easy as possible. And the mail-in ballots did that, so let's do it. But I think uh, at this point, looking at them, there's so much, it's the process has so, so, so much doubt 
among American people about whether the voting system is fixed. And I, I think that it may not be worth it. Um, you know, I think that we ought to, you know, we're the, we're the wealthiest country, we're the exemplary nation, we're supposed to be modeling democracy for the rest of the world. We we put a man on the moon, you know, we, we make Teslas, we do all this. We ought to be able to have, make a voting machine that everybody believes in. We, there's ATM machines on every corner in every city in our country, and none of them ever gives you too much money. You know, they never right. mess up. And, and you, have, you know, we go to Las Vegas. There's an entire city built on this presumption that you can make machines that can count right and that never get it wrong. Right? All the slot machines. And and um, so it's pretty hard to, 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 you know, to understand why don't we have a voting system that works. I think we need machines that work. Uh, we also need paper ballots at the voting booth and that every ballot has a pay, every vote has a paper record to it. So that if there's any question about it, that we ought to be able to go in there and count, recount them on a very, very low threshold of doubt. Uh, I think it's really important for Americans, for all Americans to believe that the voting system works. And there's enough problems now for the mail-in ballots that are coming out that yeah. I don't I think they're probably not worth it. That's that's I I I don't know about the Vegas reference. That seems a little hokey, but but I'd never heard anybody compare it to the ATM machine. I mean, we use ATM machines with zero worry, trepidation. We don't we we always see a balance we expect to see. We always get the amount we entered into withdraw. Uh it's the backbone of the consumer banking system. It's completely taken over. Hardly anybody goes into a bank anymore. So if that technology can be refined and perfected to the point where even people that are suspicious of technology use it, then what What the hell are we doing here with voting? Why are there all these permutations and variations if not for if not for vote manufacturing if not for stealing elections what is this all for and it you know it went from election day to early voting to election month to you can vote for three months before the election and there's you can vote from your car and we're there, there's this i think it's nevada there's a state somewhere uh, where they've discovered a whole bunch of people that were registered to vote but didn't vote and and are saying in affidavits i didn't vote i didn't participate in the election but it turns out somebody voted their their vote so yeah i i think this is our big problem to be honest i know most of you listening right now think who wins the election is the most important feature of this election and it's hard to argue with that but i gotta tell you i keep thinking about the morning after this election in november where Trump wins the election or is is called the winner or is declared the winner, but you realize there will be a ton of people who will not believe that, who have been prepared and, and brainwashed to believe that that can't legitimately happen. They won't accept his election. And, of course, you may be feeling like if they come out and tell me Biden was reelected, I'm not buying it. I will not accept that. There is no way. There will be trouble. I mean... That's where we're at. So, yes, the winner is important and who wins is important, but we have a problem with elections themselves now that are not decisive or credible 
for half the country. You can blame it on a lot of things, and there's people involved, but there's, the, the, really what it comes down to is this is one of those problems that if anybody can solve it, we as Americans could solve it. And I thought it was an interesting comparison to ATM. So 210-599-5555. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about what Laura Trump said. I like it a lot. I hope she means it. I hope she's in a position to do something about it. I've been waiting for I don't know how many years to hear somebody on our side say, okay, until the rules are restored to sanity, we will play this game. We will engage in this with even greater creativity and energy because uh, if this is how you want to do it, we'll do it. And then here's Robert Kennedy saying, no, we really we really need to just have election day. So I, um, I like two com- conflicting competing ideas. I like Laura Trump saying if this is how elections are going to be held, Republicans need to get into that battlefield, into that space, bring that energy. Totally agree. Where the hell has that been for the last four years? You know, you don't relitigate. You motivate people and win the next one. And then the uh, the thing that Robert Kennedy said: we we really do have a problem, even if you're celebrating on election night. Even if the outcome is what you've hoped and prayed for. I mean, it's a fact that there will be a lot of people the morning after this election, however it ends, who will not believe that it is legit, who will believe that a foreign power or hackers or both altered the outcome. What do you do with that? I mean, it's a given that we're going to have close elections probably for quite some time. It's a given that we're importing new voters and changing the makeup of the country itself. We're replacing the voters. We don't recognize political outcomes all around us. We're looking and we're trying to figure out how did did this happen? You know, like here here in San Antonio, how did we get this, this DA? How did we get this sheriff? What the hell happened? Look at the city council. What is going on? But, but that, Magnified on, on a national basis by an outcome that half half of voters think is is bogus. You can't have that. You can't survive that as a country. And and, and we have a fifty percent chance of Biden. We have a fifty percent chance of Trump. We have a one hundred percent chance of what I'm describing. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So yeah, I I used to be. I'll tell you what I used to, I used to really rebel against the idea of election day as a holiday. And it, I thought, I figured out why this is. When I was a kid and I would watch my parents vote, my parents, you know, were hardworking people. My dad worked all day at a job he hated because he could support his family and it was close to our house. And he was the epitome of, you know, it's not about fulfillment and loving your work. He just, it, it was a good job and he, he did it, did his duty. And my mom raised four kids and took care of our house and cooked a hot meal for us every night. And we never had to get leftovers or cold sandwiches or something. So they worked hard, okay, and they voted. And back then you could only vote on election day. 
And they figured out how to do it, and they figured out how to get it done. So it used to just offend me when I'd hear people say, it needs to be a holiday. Like, you, well, you just put on your big boy pants. Really? But now that I think about it, I, you know, if we could, if we could get rid of all the other dreck and all the other, uh, games and say, you've got from sun up to sundown, there's nothing else you have to do, no work, no school, just vote. It, you know, if you have to crawl to the ballot place, you've got all day to do it. I would trade all that other stuff away and say, okay, you can have your you can have your national holiday. You can have your day off. 210-599-5555. It just used to, to me, it always sounded like an excuse for people that didn't vote. Oh, I'd vote if it was a holiday. Yeah, okay. I was... I have to admit, I still am, I'm still not comfortable when I hear people say, well, let's make it as easy as possible for people to vote, because that always sounds like you're going to have lazy, know-nothings vote. I'm not in favor of that. Are you in favor of that? Does that sound good to you? Let's have more ignorant, low-information voters. No. I figure if it's, if it's challenging for you to vote, that's probably because you have a job or you have responsibilities and... Your day is full of things that, you know, adult things you have to do and you, you get them done. And I just, I, I just don't want to hear a, you know, a bunch of crybabying about it. You know, there's countries where people have to duck machine gun fire to vote or can be, uh, you know, attacked after they vote. 210-599-5555. So a couple of headlines. This came out last night. The Biden administration is considering a string of new executive actions that would be announced at or around the State of the Union address next month to deal with the border. Trying to turn the failure of the border deal with Republicans and Democrats into a political advantage for the president, says Politico. Here's another headline. Uh... President Biden announced yesterday he's forgiving another $1.2 billion in student loan debt, affecting over 150,000 borrowers. The new Saving on a Valuable Education Plan, or SAVE, according to CNBC, will go to borrowers who have been in repayment for a decade or longer. So I don't know what the total tally is, but this adds on to the billions that Biden has already forgiven, even though the Supreme Court has said you can't do it. He is defying the Supreme Court. He is defying his own previous comments that he didn't have the power to forgive student loan debt, something that Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton both had previously said, leading lights of the Democratic Party. And then I read in the New York Post yesterday that While New York State is in a crisis from illegal immigration, New York politicians are quietly celebrating it, says columnist Betsy McCoy, and here's why. For all the complaining about all the immigrants, and where do we put them, and how are we supposed to pay for this, New York is happy about it because it's going to inflate their census numbers, increasing their congressional seats and their clout in the Electoral College. And Elon Musk has been writing about this, too, saying most people in America don't know 
that the census is based on a simple head count. It includes everybody. It includes illegals, not just citizens. So we are shifting political power to the places that are uh, burgeoning and bursting with more illegal immigrants. And there was even a member of Congress, I forget who, I think we might have played it or I might have thought to play it but didn't, but there was a member of Congress from New York who actually said um, at a hearing, I need more people in my district to keep my seat. And what she meant was not that the illegal immigrants could vote for her yet, but that if her district grew in the census, it would not, she would not be redistricted into another one. So that's what we've been sort of left with at this point. You may be excited about the poll numbers that show Trump ahead in the battleground states and ahead nationally, and you may feel like his chances are improving. But the Democrats have redrawn the map of our politics. They have changed all the rules of the game. Everything from buying the votes of various groups, as Biden is doing with debt forgiveness, to um, constantly changing or threatening to change the rules of the Senate and the House, the makeup of the Supreme Court, ending the Electoral College. They've already shown us that they will willy-nilly change state balloting laws anytime and every time they want to or feel the need to. Obviously, we're witnessing an unprecedented assault on the leader of their political opposition. And not just him, but the private homes and private lives of countless not famous people that have been caught up in this. And... um a double standard when it comes to rioters and demonstrators. So if you were at January 6th, we were going to put you under the jail. But if you were a BLM or Antifa rioter or demonstrator, nope, you're fine. These are the, these are the rules of the game. And there's many more. I'm not even getting into the policing of social media, the weaponization of the Department of Justice and the FBI and the IRS. Uh, and again, there is a naked and obvious attempt to to buy votes, to manipulate votes, to scare groups of voters. Um, so what what it means, I think, is you can hope for a particular outcome, you can vote for candidates and parties that you favor, but we're going to be playing this on a board with completely different rules their rules or think of it in a sports analogy all your games your team all your games are away games all of them uh we start with patrick at 210-599-5555 patrick welcome to the show hi how you doing good thank you how are you just fine i uh called because um a couple of weeks ago i received an application like i had requested uh a mail-in ballot, and I never requested anything. And I just think that they're trying to send these things out so they can uh, go out and uh, fraudulently get uh, more mail-in ballots uh, for the election. Mm -hmm. At no point did I request anything, but I did get something. 
Yeah. Well, and you wonder, like, how many of those things that you got and you got your hands on maybe float into somebody else's hands and they become you for the purposes of that vote? Yeah. Well, the thing about it is that I vote every year and I vote on every election. So somehow or another, if my deal comes out two or three or four times, I think uh, I'll be looking into it. What do you think about just getting rid of all of this and just, ha- you know, obviously you need mail votes for, like, our military and stuff, but aside from that, which was always an exception, just voting on Election Day, give everybody the day off so there's nothing in the way, no excuse. To me, that's a that's a good start. I, I think we need to go back to the old way of doing things, which was that. Uh, one day you go and vote, and by the end of the night or the next yes. morning, everything is done. Yeah, and no no surprises, no finding boxes and all this other stuff. Uh all the votes get counted on the day that they were that they were cast. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for the call. Appreciate having you. 210-599-5555. So, I'm going to share this with you. I don't know I don't know any more about this than what's being reported. But you probably have heard a story in the news the last few days about a gentleman um who worked in the um he worked for Brandeis High School in the Northside Independent School District. And he worked in their ALE program, which is a special program um, for students that need a lot of assistance. Uh, and it's, it's my hat is off to anybody that works in that program. It's, I think it stands for Applied Learning Something. But it really is for uh, students with a lot of needs it basically it, it gives them sort of the basics of coping and dealing with things. And so this man was working. He was 73 years old. And we don't really know what happened. But he had some kind of encounter with or interaction with a student. And he fell. And he hit his head. And he died from the head injury. And it's a tragedy. And every article I've read quotes the Bear County Medical Examiner's Office as saying that his death was a homicide, which could mean a lot of things, but it, it certainly doesn't mean that he tripped and fell or, you know, it was a freak accident or something. It's, they're, they're saying his death was a homicide. And there, apparently there were other staff members present, now here's where the story gets interesting. The the teachers union, so called, the AFT for the district, put out a statement blaming Greg Abbott for the death of this gentleman. Again, it's been ruled a homicide. He was redirecting a student, that's the word they use. And they put out a press release dated last night mourning the loss of this man and declaring that educators should feel safe and protected while carrying out their duties. And the fault lies with Governor Abbott and the politicians in Austin, the president of the AFT, 
uh, says the fault for this senseless tragedy does not lie with Fred, who did exactly what he was supposed to do, or with the student whose needs have not been met. And went on to say uh, the problem is not enough funding, not enough staffing, not enough access to mental health support. That's a pretty strong thing to say. This man dies in an encounter with a student. Three other staff members are present, according to press reports, if that's true. And the governor is to blame? See, this is what I mean by the it's-never-enough theory that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't with us, we, we were talking about, and I've brought this up before, and it's kind of a bugaboo, when it comes to teachers' unions, there's never enough, right? We've, we've, we never pay teachers enough. We never fund schools enough. We, you and me, we don't care enough. We don't love our kids enough. Uh, there's, never, there's never enough of anything and everything. And as a parent who was very involved at every grade level and at every school that my daughter went to, and I joined the PTA, and I donated to all the things, and went to the meeting. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of overhearing that. Like you can you can you can can that. Okay, I don't want to hear that. And I saw a lot of people like me coming to these things and caring. You know, I'm sorry you didn't get everybody, but you 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 got a lot of people. And we came to the events, and we came to the school. And remember that when we started raising objections about curriculum and stuff, then you told us to not to come, that we didn't know anything. We didn't have any business having an opinion. So it's kind of interesting, kind of a mixed message. You know, we want parental involvement and support, but hey, mind your own business, parents. And now this, and I'm, re- I'm reading it, and I'm like, okay, I wasn't there. I don't know. I'm not fixing blame. It sounds like, if I'm reading this right, tell me if you think I'm wrong, it sounds like there was some kind of physical altercation with an ALE student. And that this gentleman got the worst of it. I don't know, but that's kind of what I'm reading between the lines. It's, it's a hell of a take to say that's Greg Abbott's fault. <laughs> that is really something. That is about as crassly political as you can get. And let's remember that we now live in a time, we just saw this with the Kansas City parade shooting, we now live in a time when people who have an agenda don't wait for the facts. You know, the the talking points are all loaded and ready to go, and we're going with them, you know. We know what we're going to say about this, even if we don't know all the facts or what happened or why it happened. So naturally, the AFT comes out and says, not enough money, not enough support. Uncaring politicians. Okay. What do you think? 210-599-5555. It is, it is a tragedy. I'm not disputing that. Um, it may be a tragedy that can't be adjudicated. Because again, if you read between the lines, it kind of sounds like maybe this is one of those situations where the student may maybe maybe somebody that cannot really be held accountable. I don't know though. I'm not going to assume that, but that may be what is going on here. Certainly if if he or she can be, they need to be. 
But it also looks like one of those crises, don't let a good crises go to waste or whatever, you know. We're gonna, we got a, we got an opportunity here to make our point. We're gonna make our point. And that's disgusting, in my opinion. It's been in the news the last few days. A teaching assistant at Brandeis High School, uh, hit his head and died of the injury, uh, while working with an ALE student. Um, and, you know, I've I've grabbed on to every version of this I can find. They're all they're all pretty much in agreement. None of them really describe what happened. Just that there was an encounter or redirection. Uh, and so I I wouldn't sit here and pretend to say let me wrap this up for you with a bow. I'm not doing that. Hope you don't think I am because I'm not. But I think it's gross that the teachers' union is doing that. In the name of honoring this man, and they say that's what they're doing, they, they claim that's why they're saying this, in the name of, you know, sort of honoring his death and his service, 73-year-old man, the head of the AFT for Northside School District says, well, the, the villains in this story sit in the governor's mansion. Yeah, really, like, when is that ever not your explanation for everything? Everything. Oh, it's a cloudy day. Oh, those Republicans. You know, I mean, it's just, it's laughable. Not not what happened to him. But the, the broken record, you know, all, all we have is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And it kind of comes back to, because she's, she's essentially saying, uh, we need more. Uh, funding, and we need more staffing, and we need more training, and uh, that's why this happened. We need more is the mantra for teachers' unions. And, you know, they, they get more all the time. They don't always get everything they ask for, but none of us do. You don't, I don't. But somehow it's a bottomless pit. There's never, we never, we never hear what, what enough would be. And apparently there is no enough. Apparently we will always be disappointing to these teachers unions. They will always find us disappointing. We will never care enough. We will never love our children enough. We will never love the teachers enough. We don't appreciate them enough. If you were in a relationship with somebody, who never stopped demanding more from you, would that not be a toxic relationship? Would you not? I mean, that's what they're calling it now, right? That's the new nomenclature. Like, it's a, your, your girlfriend is toxic or your husband is toxic, you know, because he just keeps taking and demanding and demanding and demanding, and no matter what you do, it's never enough. That's what this is. That's the relationship you are in with organized labor in education. I mean, if they can't define enough, then they will never stop saying they're not getting enough. And I think in order to make this man's death your Exhibit A, we, the people who, are, who you're demanding do something, we would have to know what happened, and we don't. I don't know if we ever will. What do you think about it? 210 599 
55. I have to tell you, I never thought I'd live to see the day, but I have lived to see the day. Apparently, there was a speech at the San Marcos Chamber of Commerce given by the executive director of TxDOT, a man named Mark Williams. And, you know, being in San Marcos, at the Chamber of Commerce, everybody's interested in I-35. And I guess somehow the question came up, as it would, when are you people ever going to be finished with I-35? And the answer that Mark Williams gave, according to KXAN-TV, the answer he gave was never. Not, a, not in a joking way, like we would joke, this, they'll, be, they'll never be done, or they'll be working on this road 100 years from now. The head of TxDOT said, the construction will never end on Interstate 35, which is, of course, our state's primary north-south artery. It will never conclude, he told his audience. I can say that pretty conclusively, he added. Never. Always, forever, under construction. The punchline has become the official line. I have to say, I think we have finally found an honest man in government. I salute him for at least admitting it. Because you do, right? You get the feeling, and not just 35, but like I-10. It'll never, it'll never be done. It will, when, when, it, when it finishes here, they'll start over there. When they start, when they finish over there, they'll come back over here. It's like squeezing a balloon. He was trying to spin it as a positive. He was saying, uh, this is a good thing. Because our business and our population in Texas are booming. And the boom is fueled and fed and, and kept alive by this north-south artery. So if we're always having to expand it and improve it, it means Texas is always booming, is always expanding, is always growing, is always adding people, is always adding commerce. Okay, fair point. But I guess what that leaves me wondering is, why are we never building ahead of the growth? Why are we always playing catch-up? Why, why is it when we look around, and I don't know what your daily route is or what you drive on, maybe you're not a 35 driver, maybe you're a 410 driver, or an I-90 driver, I mean a uh, Highway 90 driver, or whatever your, your, whatever your, uh, the, wherever you do your daily penance behind the wheel. Um, does it not always seem like we're just catching up? Like the lane they're adding, they needed that 10 years ago, and they really need three, but they're adding one, or by the time they finish this project, uh, they'll need more than what they're adding. Why are we always catching up and never building ahead of the growth? And he says, we know we're growing. Well, if we know we're growing, if it's not a surprise anymore, like, well, where'd all these people come from? We, we all, we all know what's happening and why it's happening. Why can't we get ahead of it? Axios News reported the other day that Mexico has supplanted China as the leading exporter of consumer goods into the United States. Consumer, you know, like clothes and stuff for your kitchen and stuff like that. 
Mexico is now the number one place where we are making the stuff and transshipping it into the United States. If that's true, and Axios quoted a trucking executive who said, yeah, there's lots of retail manufacturing ramping up in Mexico, and companies are moving their stuff from China to Mexico. So if that's true, then it sounds like we need a crash building program. Like It sounds like we need... We don't just need to nibble around the edges of I-35. We probably need like a whole other I-35. It seems obvious, but it never gets done. It's always too little, too late. And, of course, because you're always driving through construction and you're never using any of these roads to their full capacity, you're not even, not only are we not, not only are we not catching up, but we seem to be falling further and further behind because you're always on a road that is only being used to like half of its width or 75% of its width. So we're not using all the lanes that are already there because we're building new lanes. But then when we open the new lanes, they won't be enough. What do you think? 210 599 Jaime is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jack Riccardi Show. Jaime, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Two points. The reason that, they never, that they'll never finish it and they'll never get ahead is because they don't make money that way. How do you get right. people to spend their money is inconvenience them and tell them, as long as you keep spending money, we're going to make it better and faster, but mm. yet it never gets done faster. Perfect example. My second point is a perfect example is 281 when they try to pass that toll road. Look how much money we had to waste as citizens to fight that toll road, once the once it was fought and said that it wasn't going to happen, look how fast everything's getting built mm-hmm. over there. Look how big the road mm-hmm. is getting. They're, mm-hmm. they, they're going to be. Trust me, we're, they're going to try to push that toll road because anytime you anytime you try to go somewhere like from Santa Austin, the Google Maps, Google everything tries to send you to the toll road before yep. it even gets you to 35. It always says the yep. toll road's faster, but you have to drive an hour out before you get to the toll road. Right. Right? It's ridiculous. Right. Thank you. Right. Appreciate it. That great point, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I get that it's all about making money, but you'd also make a lot of money if you said, "Hey, we're just going to bite the bullet, and uh, we need we need another interstate." I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good reasons why this doesn't happen. Jaime had some of them. Let me throw another log on the fire. The politicians still believe that the future is not. Cars, you know, the future is pods and mass transit and working from home, and you know, all of a sudden we're going to have uh, we're we're going to get people out of these these cars. That's what I think the EV push really is. I mean, when you start driving the average price of cars into the stratosphere, that's a backhanded way of getting people out of cars. You price them out of it. So I, I feel like that's behind a lot of this their reluctance to build roads reflects their belief that we don't want people in cars now you're still going to need roads even if you get people out of cars for the reason we just cited with mexico but um it's it's i think we're fighting against an entrenched political class that hates the personally owned personal use vehicle hate it Makes us hard to control, makes us independent, 
freedom of movement means freedom of assembly. We can get together with other like-minded people and frustrate all their other plans for eating crickets and, you know, so forth. I, I, I really don't think they will ever acquiesce to the reality that you need massively more roads, massively more lanes than we have today. Did the AT&T outage affect you? I guess they're now thinking it was, um, there was a nationwide loss of service that mainly affected AT&T, but also some T-Mobile and Verizon uh, customers. And we're asking you on the poll, were you affected at all with your phone or other services? Uh, as part of this, it was pretty massive. And they're now thinking it was a solar flare. Uh, it's possible but not definite that a solar flare that occurred at around the time of the outage uh, caused the outage. But I thought it was kind of weird that we had just been talking about uh, the vulnerability of taking down our, uh, and I forget what started us on that, but we had just recently been talking about the vulnerability of, say, the Chinese communists or a terrorist group taking down uh, satellite-based communications because we're, we're not only reliant on them, but I think there would be a sense of panic at their absence. I mean, it's one thing, like I had a, a situation happen at my house one day recently where all of a sudden there was no water. Just middle of the afternoon, no water. No notice, no, you know. And it was it was a nuisance, and it was frustrating. And I went outside, and here's these guys in a truck. And they had turned the water off in the neighborhood. Didn't tell anybody. You know, it was just very weird, and it was very brief. But nobody panicked. The people weren't running around. And, you know, the water was back. You get the feeling, though, like with... The way we, the multiple ways that we depend on communications and so forth, you, you get the feeling that people would go very quickly from being aggravated or annoyed or puzzled to, to really being like freaked out. I think it's interesting that less than 25 years ago, the ultimate terrorist attack, the ultimate get everybody's attention, shut the country down, force everyone to stop action, was to attack two skyscrapers and the Pentagon. Buildings. Kill people. And I really believe that if you were trying to achieve that objective today, if you were, if you were the culprits today, I, I, I don't think a building would, would be it. First of all, it's been done. I don't mean to say, I don't say that cavalierly or cruelly, but it's already been done. Moreover, that isn't really what would get everybody's attention now, but you, all of a sudden, no TikTok, no social media. And I can't even find out, like, I can't check the news to see what is happening because there's no news. Because all the ways I get it are over the same 
technology that is now not working. Not to mention all of the financial transactions that are dependent. I, I, I just think that's what you would do now. That's not apparently what happened today, but today was a glimpse or whatever of what that would, uh, what that would be like. I, you know, I hear, I've heard for years, this, it was a very popular topic on talk radio many, many years ago. Do you remember, do you remember when like people would talk about EMPs? And that was the idea that a, a low energy nuclear explosion, uh, would, uh, be enough to basically fry, you know, the electronics of every device and, and bring down transportation and bring down communication and bring down energy and so forth and so on. And there was this concern that an, an adversary in the future with very primitive technology would be able to unleash an EMP. And so there were these people that were advocating for sheltering and shielding certain critical points in our infrastructure against that. And I think there are still people that talk about that and are saying that. But we've really spread out the the dependency way more than when the EMP discussion was first taking place. It isn't as if now we're just talking about certain points in the system. We're talking about the device in your hands. We're talking about every device that you use and depend on and rely on. And, and again, just the sort of the weirdness of how do I even find out why this is happening if I can't get the news, you know, can't get information, can't, can't check with people I know and go, Hey, is this happening to you too? I've noticed like, I don't know if this happens in your neighborhood, but like in my neighborhood, when the power goes out, people come out of their houses to uh, see if everybody else's power is out or if it's just something that happened to you. It's a weird feeling. It's kind of like our last resort is, oh, I guess I'm going to have to actually go talk to a person because we're so accustomed to just quickly clicking or brushing our finger up against a glass screen and finding out all our answers. Of course, in a situation like this, you can't do that. 210-599-5555. I, uh, I wanted to bring this up yesterday, and we just ran out of time for it. Um, but I was kind of sad to hear, and, and, and honestly, it brought back a lot of memories uh, about the, um, the uh, passing, and this happened, I guess, several days ago, uh, of a woman named Sandy Wood. And if that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, Sandy Wood was on the radio uh, for many, many years doing a program that was produced out of the McDonald Observatory in West Texas. And it was a, it was a uh, program, uh, a radio feature called Star Date. And I don't know when I started hearing it. But I, it, it feels like I've been hearing it forever, and I'm sure that's not true. But, I mean, it was just around for a long, long time. And it was a little, uh, like a little vignette about astronomy and stars and so forth. And I realized after a while that I was kind of interested in the subject matter, but what really made it 
I think must hear radio was her voice. And it turns out, I, in in terms of uh, reporting on her passing, uh, it turns out that she was born in San Antonio and grew up in Corpus. I didn't know that. Um, and had worked in radio and had done uh, voiceover. And she had this uh, just amazing, soothing. Don, you and I were talking about this off the air yesterday. Soothing is the word you used. I think it's the perfect word. It was not a um, announcery voice. It was just a very soothing mm, voice. Mm, very inviting. It made you want to listen to what mm. she was saying, even if you didn't actually care about what she was saying, which I guess is the ultimate compliment we can pay, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. She could read the uh, McDonald's menu, and, and yeah. you'll, you know, you, you'll want to go buy hamburgers for some reason. But, yeah, it's a very inviting voice, yes. Uh, this, for those that have not heard it, uh, this is what Sandy Wood sounded like on Stardate. Stardate. Stars are born when giant clouds of gas and dust break apart and collapse. And if that's all there was to it, the Milky Way galaxy would give birth to a couple of hundred stars every year. Instead, thanks to feedback from the stars themselves, it makes only a few. Feedback is a process that clears away the material for making more stars, but can also trigger the birth of more stars. Very young stars, for example, produce strong winds and jets that blow away the gas and dust around them. Since stars are born in clusters, a lot of young stars can be sweeping away the star-making material at the same time. That greatly reduces the number of stars that can be born in a cluster. Mature stars add to the feedback not only winds, but also with radiation. Hot stars generate a lot of ultraviolet radiation, which vaporizes tiny particles of dust, eliminating possible building blocks for new stars. The heaviest stars explode as supernovae. These blasts can clear out the space for light years around a supernova, creating big, empty bubbles. And supernovae also accelerate subatomic particles around them to almost the speed of light. These cosmic rays help to sweep away the raw materials for making more stars. But supernovae can also enhance the stellar birth rate. Their blast waves can cause distant clouds of gas and dust to collapse to form stars. So feedback is a complex process, one that both aids and hinders the birth of new stars. And... Uh... In an interview, apparently, she was asked, or or she said that people always assumed that she was herself either an astronomer or an expert, and she said, no, I, I learned a lot from doing the feature, but I by no means was an expert. I'm sure that she has family and friends that miss the person Sandy Wood was, but for the rest of us, we will miss that. A voice, and we will appreciate how soothing and comforting and familiar it was, and and how comforting any familiar voice can be. Right? We just even when we hear a familiar voice on the phone, we're just glad to hear it. Sandy Wood's voice was like that. It is now time. Music. Top 10 board. We'll start with number 10. We're back in the year 1977. This week in 1977, President Jimmy Carter announced that U.S. foreign aid 
would be linked to human rights in the country receiving the aid. The first time a space shuttle flew, the space shuttle Enterprise was mounted on top of a 747. And Bank of America made a little announcement this week in 1977. They announced that from now on, all of their credit cards would be called Visa cards for the first time this week in 1977. And on the top 10 list in 1977, he has sold 90 million records. He's toured over 50 years. And Barry Manilow right now is on his one last time tour. In fact, he's heading to Milwaukee this weekend. But for now, in 1977 at number 10, it's weekend in New England. The number 10 song this week in 1977, Barry Manilow, Weekend in New England. At number 9 this week, the supergroup ABBA had a sure thing on its hands. With one band member saying, it's often difficult to know what will be a hit, but with Dancing Queen, we all knew it would be massive. It was a worldwide hit. It was their only number one hit in the U.S. And they say their inspiration for it was the George McRae song, Rock Your Baby, of a few years earlier. Dancing Queen, ABBA, moving up to number nine this week in 1977. At number eight this week, the lead single from the Bob Seger album that really put him on the map based on his own teenage love affair that he experienced in the early 1960s and immortalized in Night Moves. The title track from the album, by the way, her name was Renee Andretti, and he has said he wrote a lot of his early songs to try to impress Renee, inspired by watching the movie American Graffiti, Bob Seger, and Night Moves at number eight. At number seven, we go to St. Paul, Minnesota for Mary McGregor. She has the song this week at number seven this week, Torn Between Two Lovers. That doesn't mean I love you.
Believe it or not, Mary McGregor says she hates this song because she hates the woman in the song. She says she sounds weak to her. But it was a big hit, torn between two lovers at number seven this week in 1977. Jermaine, Tito, Marlon, and Randy are still touring as the Jacksons. In fact, they're playing Tampa on March 7th, and they're sitting at number six this week in 1977 with Enjoy Yourself. Enjoy Yourself by the Jacksons at number six. This week in 1977 on our Throwback Thursday countdown. At number five, he wrote or co-wrote hits like Lady Marmalade for LaBelle and My Eyes Adored You for Frankie Valli. But the only hit he had as a singer was this one. Kenny Nolan, I Like Dreaming. Kenny Nolan's one hit wonder, I Like Dreamin', on our Throwback Thursday countdown. The song at number four is moving up fast for the Steve Miller Band. They started performing it in 1973, uh, but didn't record it until they put it on an album in 76. And here it is at number four in 77, Fly Like an Eagle. Of course, the other way a lot of people know this song is uh, for about the last 25 years, the United States Postal Service has used it in their TV commercials. Fly Like an Eagle, Steve Miller Band, up four to number four this week in the year 1977. The song at number three was written and recorded by Bruce Springsteen. It was on his 73 debut album, Greeting from Asbury Park, New Jersey, but it was the cover of that song by British rock band Manfred Mann's Earth Band that went all the way to number one, and this week is down to number three. According to Bruce Springsteen, he wrote the song by going through a rhyming dictionary 
in search of words that rhyme but didn't necessarily make any sense, like madman, drummers, bummers, and Indians in the summers with a teenage diplomat. And, of course, we have to point out that a whole lot of people hear this song and think that Manfred Mann's Earth Band is saying, wrapped up like a douche. Of course, they're saying deuce, as in a 1932 V8-powered Ford Coupe. But probably made a lot more people a lot more interested in this song. Blinded by the Light was number one, and this week drops to number three in 1977. And number two this week is Evergreen, also called the love theme from A Star is Born. It's from the film A Star is Born, and it's uh, composed and performed by Barbara Streisand and Paul Williams. Like a Snow. I was always certain love would grow. Love, ageless and Seldom for her part in helping to write this song, Barbara Streisand became the first woman honored with an Academy Award for Best Original Song. And she is an amazingly fine voice on this one. The number two song this week in 1977 from A Star is Born, Barbara Streisand and Evergreen. And that brings us to this week's number one song. Number one. One. <laughs> The number one song this week in the year 1977 is from the Eagles album Hotel California. It's the first single from that album. It's a song that won the Grammy Award for the Eagles that year. And the biographer of the band, Mark Elliott, says this song captures a precise moment familiar to any guy who's ever felt the pain, jealousy, insecurity, or rage of the moment he discovers his girlfriend likes someone else better. This song is New Kid in Town. song this week in 1977 jd souther had some of the lyrics years before they had the whole thing put together from the hotel california album new kid in town number one this week in 77 it's about do don cooper for another one of our uh, favorite misheard song lyric shows that's those are always popular but anytime you talk about misheard song lyrics blinded by the light is like no, all time oh, right yeah. top five 
top three. Maybe. And um, I, when, uh, many, many, many years ago when I hosted a countdown show for music radio called Music Magazine, we would do these features about older songs, classics, and stuff. And the deal, as I recall, I'm doing this from memory, but I think the thing with Bruce Springsteen was he's always been a, a, a car buff. He owns classic cars. He just recently sold an old uh, Olds 442 that he had. And he, so he's been into cars. And so it was very natural for him to write a lyric, uh, cut loose like a deuce, which they re, uh, or revised to revved up like a deuce. But he just said deuce. And deuce coupe would be familiar to people that know uh, hot rods and old cars. But Manfred Mann, and they claim innocently, in fact, they say it wasn't even a mispronunciation, it was a production error, that just the way it was laid down on tape, it was like slurred or distorted or whatever, so it sounded like the other word. And once they realized it, they said, well, we, it was too late to you know change it. And remember now, we're talking about the analog days, probably with digital, right? You'd be able to fix it. You know, Don, you could probably fix it with the stuff you have, the suite you have in front of you. But in the analog days, that wasn't so easy. And so they said, yeah, we just couldn't, um, by the time we realized what it sounded like, we couldn't fix it. And, of course, they're not terribly sorry about it because everybody believes that made it a bigger hit. That yeah. oh. added to its controversy. I mean, there were radio stations that wouldn't play it at first because they thought the guys had said the word on purpose. And uh, then it became, I'm sure, something that people played at home and listened to and, you know, dropped the needle on over and over again for their friends. And, you know, mm -hmm. so. Well, if you think about it, even the time period that this, the song had come out, that word was not necessarily no. it was still kind of a, you know, uh, an embarrassing word to use, so to speak. You know? Well, so, if you, you know, if you're under a certain age, you don't realize that, like, radio stations, we weren't allowed to. Um, with advertising even, you couldn't have used the, that word or certain other bodily function words. Now you hear everything. People on radio are talking about their bowel movements and their <laughs> excretions and exertions. And, you know, the, the, the hosts are talking about it. The commercials mm. are talking mm. about it. Mm. I mean, everybody's talking about it. Maybe we need to go back. Could we go back maybe to a few things? <laughs> Would, wouldn't that be nice? Things that were left unheard. Mm -hmm. Yes, a few things that we just aren't going to talk about on the radio. I know they exist. I know your body works that way, but do we have to have that on the radio? Anyway, so Manford Man uh, both claims it was an innocent mistake, and it helped make the song yeah, a really big yeah. hit. I think one of, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in this, and I, I know you want to move on, but I think maybe the most the song, the most unheard lyric, lyrical song might be... Uh, uh, money for nothing, dire straits. Or it's money. Oh for, yeah, that's money there. for nothing, and the chips are free. <laughs> <laughs> chips. Yes, the chips are free. Yeah. Well, in San Antonio, that's true. But yeah. uh, uh, and and by the way, uh, it's the chicks are free, and they never are. That's a lie. You know, I got to give credit where credits due because I was pretty hard on the uh, Republican debates of last year. I thought they were atrocious. Uh, primarily, not not so much the candidates as the moderators, just really bad, really 
gawky, geeky, nerdy. Um, it it, it seems, and I, and I, I, you know, maybe I sound like some frustrated radio guy, but it just seems like moderators of TV debates go out of their way to create situations and ask offbeat questions when the obvious stuff that we need to talk about is right in front of us. They know it. The candidates know it. Instead, we get dumb questions about your favorite flavor of chicken wings or say something nice about your opponent's wife or, you know, just crazy stuff. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Because the more I've watched it, and I watched the bonus cuts, the bonus segment that didn't make it onto the live broadcast with Laura Ingram on Fox, uh, the town hall that she did with former President Trump, she really, he is at his best in this uh, town hall or forum or whatever you want to call it with Laura Ingram. And I give her a lot of the credit. I think she put him at ease. I think she managed to ask good questions and raise good topics. She wasn't uh, fawning all over him like some of these Fox people do, but she wasn't, um, you know, sort of trying to make herself the center of attention. It was really well done. And it brought out, I think, some of the best uh, answers and demeanor that we've had from Trump in a long, long time. I mean, he may want to consider, he may want to consider, um, a reprise. Uh, of this uh, live event with Laura Ingram. So this was in advance of Saturday's South Carolina primary. One of the things she brought up, and it needs to be talked about, and he needs to explain this, I think. She asked him about the difficulties he had, not with opposition to him as president from the Democrats, but internal opposition from people he had brought on board to his administration in the first term. And how would he be more knowledgeable and able to avoid that in a second term? Cut number two. When I was elected, I was in Washington 17 times in my entire life, and I never stayed over. I wasn't a Washington person. So I had to rely on, in some cases, rhinos. In some cases, well-meaning rhinos, but they were recommending people. And some of the people I had, I wouldn't have uh, used again. And now I know everybody. I know the good ones, the weak ones, the strong ones, the incompetent ones, the very smart ones that people don't know this, how smart they are. You know, those are the ones we like the best. But the fact is, I know the people now really well. Because, you know, I did. I won. I was a businessman. It's, if you ever look at the charts, 92% of the people that became president were politicians. The other 8% were generals. So I was neither. I was neither of them. That is a focused answer. That is a good answer. Because uh, this is something I worry about. You know, I told you earlier I worry about the election itself, and I know you do too. Um, if Donald Trump gets back in, I know his instincts are good. But I also know that if he doesn't do a much, much, much better job and make appointments much more deeply into the government, um, it will not only end like the first Trump presidency, but it will be much worse. They are really ready for him this time in the deep state. But I thought that was a fairly good answer, or the beginnings of a good answer to that to that concern that I think a lot of us 
do have. And then, because it's been in the news a lot lately, Laura Ingram asked uh, Donald Trump about his recent comments about NATO, and she played some of the reaction to those comments from people like Hillary Clinton and President Biden. So take a listen to this, cut number three. Now, you're getting slammed from some of your old adversaries about your NATO comments. Watch. Why is Donald Trump so enamored of Putin? Well, part of it is he's a wannabe dictator. He even said the other day, let's uh, basically get out of NATO and, you know, encourage Putin to do what he wants. All of us should reject the dangerous statements made by the previous president that invited Russia to invade our NATO allies if they weren't paying up. So does this mean you're not going to defend NATO countries if they haven't paid their two point whatever percent? Yeah, sort of. It does. We have we have 28 countries. We have 28 countries and they were taking advantage tremendously. You know, look, the European nations, I happened to be a long time ago. My parents, my grandparents came from a place called Europe. So I love it. But they are very smart and they took advantage. They've taken advantage of us on trade and they've taken advantage of us on NATO. And what happened, what I did is I told them, if you don't pay up, I'm not going to defend you. And they said, I can't believe it. Nobody else ever said that. Bush came in, he made a speech and they left. Obama came in, he made a speech. We were supporting almost 100 percent. In my opinion, we were paying for Europe's military, almost 100 percent, not 40 percent or 20 percent. They weren't paid up. And a question was asked by the head of a country, very strong question, at a big meeting, one night, 28 countries, sir, does that mean that if we don't pay, you will not defend us from Russia or whoever? I said, you say you didn't pay? You were delinquent? He said, yes, let's say we were, I would not defend you. Now, if I said I would defend them, they wouldn't have paid. As soon as I said, that's right, that's exactly what it means, the money came pouring in. So he's saying, I think... And you can tell me if you think I have this wrong. He's saying, I have to get them to participate in NATO. I think that's actually kind of a pro-NATO argument. Because, you know, if we just keep going the way we're going, we have an alliance in name only. It's really the United States military permanently ensconced in Europe. It's the United States taxpayer permanently paying for the defense of Europe and and paying for countries that have long since recovered from their destruction and, um, you know, devastation of World War II. These are countries that are doing very well. They are uh, entirely capable financially, technologically, et cetera, capable of uh, being players in their own defense and in the defense of Europe. I support NATO. I'm not one that that thinks we should end it, but we should end it as it's been. We should end the 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 charade of it being a a multinational alliance. We should also redefine it because it's not it's it's um likely function going forward is not what it was founded to do in whatever it was 1949 or whenever they chartered NATO. So it it almost sounded to me like what he's saying is, hey, I have to get them to pay. And she invites him to say, are you saying, you know, no NATO? Are you saying, I I interpret this to be like a businessman in a negotiation. Now, um, did he hand his opponents a stick to beat him with? Yes, he did. When he said, I would invite Russia, that that... 
that part was a self-inflicted wound, but I think otherwise it's a very good answer. And again, he seems to have been on message. He had like message, what do they call it? Message discipline in this thing with Laura Ingram on Fox. Now, one more I want to play. This is, um, I really w- wouldn't have expected this question. I, I thought it was kind of a, an unusual angle she took. Uh, but she asked him, she said, you have a good sense of humor. Um, is, is, should it be more, uh, prevalent or, um, foreground in your campaigning? In other words, should you be funnier as a candidate? Listen to this answer, cut number one. You're extremely funny. I mean, you have a, a fantastic sense of humor. People who, you know, don't know you personally sometimes don't see that because you're facing very serious challenges and a very serious election. How might you showcase your sense of humor during this campaign for, you know, those people who might not be all that into politics? I don't think I want to be a comedian uh, with respect (laughs) to the campaign. We have a country that's dying. We have a country that's a, it's a failing nation. I say it in my speeches, so it's a failing nation. We have a nation in decline. We are a nation in decline. I just don't think it's a subject that we're smiling too much about when i see 18 million by the time he leaves i think that's going to be the number 18 million people coming in from places unknown we have no idea who they are but they are terrorists we're going to have massive terrorism we're going to have a big problem with terrorists we're going to have a lot of problems we have to get the especially the bad ones and remember what i said the local police force you have a great family right there the heinz family sitting in the front row they lost their daughter to an illegal alien that came in And we threw him out and he was gone and he came back in, just came back in and he, his, their daughter was killed by an illegal immigrant that came in during the Biden administration. So sad. So I just don't see that much humor in what we're doing. This is a very serious charge and this is a very serious thing I'm doing. And I don't want to be, you know, if I, if I start talking with a smile, they'll say he smiled because the fake news is just terrible. He smiled. What was he smiling about? Mm. And I don't really want to smile. There's not, I want to smile when we complete the task and make America great again. I'll smile. Uh, tell me what you think. I want to get your reaction to that. Uh, that was the like the extra material that they didn't include in their live hour. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. I I even wonder if possibly they shared some of the topics with him ahead of time because th- th- these were really good answers to I think good questions uh, that were you know relevant and um, for whatever reason and in whatever way. Uh, I like the way he sounded. I would like to hear a lot more of that. Uh, in case you were busy uh, this afternoon, the U.S. landed on the moon. The spacecraft Odysseus touched down on the lunar soil. It was a combination NASA, SpaceX, public, private uh, mission. And uh, Odysseus uh, made a soft landing on the moon. It's pretty cool if you... Got a chance to watch some of it, or if you can catch up with it uh, later on tonight. And um, it's not exactly the Apollo thing with one small step for man, but I don't know. I become a little kid again when I see that stuff, you know? Any of that space stuff. I immediately revert to being like a little kid, you know, like laying on his uh, stomach on the on the living room floor looking at the... 14-inch screen of the RCA console television, watching this stuff. 
Uh, I guess they have several uh, specific scientific uh, objectives, and they're going to take pictures. And uh, the last crude landing on the moon was December of seventy-two, Apollo seventeen. So, here's another science story. Have you ever said? I don't know if I've ever said this sort of uh, slangily, but have you ever used the expression "grow a pair"? He needs to grow a pair. Why don't you grow a pair? Have you? Because scientists have grown a pair. Scientists in Israel have successfully grown functioning testicles in a dish that could one day help solve male infertility. Researchers in Israel produce tiny organoids. Am I saying that right? Organoids? Artificial miniature organs that mimic the structure and function of natural testicles. So they've grown a pair, but the pair is very small. I think we all know some people like that. Artificial testicles are a promising model for basic research and function, which could eventually be translated into therapeutic applications for sexual disorders, said Dr. Nitsen Gonin, uh, one of the researchers that worked on this uh, project so the testes have two jobs they have the hormonal job and the sperm producing function might say they're working day and night and uh they have now for the first time grown a pair in the lab what if they've made all the jokes you know we finally grew a pair anyway what was the last name of the doctor that come up with this (laughs) <laughs> Doctor, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Mm-hmm. Doctor Nitsen Gonin, okay. Gonin. Okay, just, yeah, I know, oh, I know. Okay, I like Gonad. He probably gets a lot of that. You know, I'm trying to go easy on the guy. This is pretty weird. I don't know what to make of this. Starbucks in China has launched a new drink. It's a pork latte. You got a whole theme going here. I don't know if you've noticed. Goes back to Manfred Mann. Anyway, Starbucks has launched the pork latte. They don't call it that, um, but that's what it is. They uh, call it the Abundant Year Savory Latte. But it is, in fact, a latte drink made with pork sauce, and then they put a hunk of actual pork on top as a garnish. Who's hungry? I think I just lost my appetite for dinner this week i um i'm I, i'm probably not the right person to be talking about this because i'm basically a pike's peak black as midnight kind of guy when i go to starbucks i i'm the guy who when i order a drink at starbucks they just pour it and hand it to you there's no like go down the end and wait call your name it's so simple they're like oh wait we'll just give you that now you know hot coffee black coffee i'm done um but, you know, people get the, the rainbow this and the mocha chocolate of that. And, you know, so um, the, how do you feel about the pork latte? It's kind of like dinner and coffee all in one cup. I don't know about this. I mean, I, I guess they have to cater to, you know, they're, they're a global company, right? So they got to, like, make stuff that has appeal 
to all the different markets that they uh, that they serve. But I think I'd like my pork separate from my latte. Anyway, <laughs> if you're interested and you go to China, which you will have to do for this, uh, it's nine ninety five. So, drink up, everybody. Pork latte. Why stop at pork, right? I mean, what if you want a meatloaf mochaccino, right? Or just saying, hot dog horchata. Possibilities seem endless. Are you actually vomiting now, or should I keep going? Fascinating how everybody has a podcast. It's kind of a nightmare for people like me. You know, here I am. I'm doing this career. <laughs> trying to have this career, and you wake up one day and you discover that this thing you do that people used to be a little bit impressed by. Oh, everyone does it now. So you're like, yeah, I, I, I what do you do for a living? Oh, I have a radio show. Oh, I have a podcast. I get this all the time now. Everybody's got a podcast. Um. I'm wondering, like, who's left listening? If everybody has one, don't we need some people that just listen to them? But I know people do listen. And Adam Carolla is one of those people that has had, like, a whole second career. He's, like, had a whole second act uh, to his show business life uh, doing a podcast. It's very good if you have a chance to check it out. He had Robert Kennedy on his podcast, and th- they get into a discussion about um, voting because... Adam Carolla feels, as I do, that we we have a real problem with an election that half the country, no matter how it ends up or who is declared the winner, half the country doesn't trust what they're going to be told. So they're talking with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. uh, and his wife, Cheryl Hines, the actress, and listen to this idea about what to do about how we vote and, and, uh, and ballot harvesting and vote counting and all that stuff. Uh, cut number four. What's your take on mail-in or ballot harvesting? Or I, I feel like most people that I speak to just go, why can't we just have election day? It's a holiday. You don't have to go to work. All you have to do is vote. One day we get the results that night and we don't have to worry about a new batch coming in and, 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 and any of the negative side effects that come along with some of these other ways modalities of of voting but i i've heard arguments on both sides and i don't know where you come down well i mean you know my initial uh, argument would be that you should encourage everybody to vote by making it as easy as possible and the mail-in ballots did that so let's do it but i think uh at this point looking at them there's so much it's the, the process of so 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 much doubt among american people about whether the voting system is fixed that i i think that it may not be worth it um you know i think that we ought to you know we're the we're the wealthiest country with the exemplary nation we're supposed to be modeling democracy for the rest of the world we we put a man on the moon you know we we make teslas we do all this we ought to be able to have, make a voting 
machine that everybody believes in. There's ATM machines on every corner in every city in our country, and none of them ever gives you too much money. You know, they never right. mess up. And, and you, have, you know, we go to Las Vegas, there's an entire city built on this presumption that you can make machines that can count right and that never get it wrong. Right? All the slot machines and and um, so it's pretty hard to, 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 you know, to understand why don't we have a voting system that works? I think we need machines that work. Uh, we also need paper ballots at the voting booth and that every ballot has a pay. Every vote has a paper record to it so that if there's any question about it, that we ought to be able to go in there and count, recount them on a very, very low threshold of doubt. Uh, I think it's really important for Americans, for all Americans to believe that the voting system works. And there's enough problems now for the mail-in ballots that are coming out mm. that I don't, I think they're probably not worth it. He knows he knows the answer to his question. When he says, I don't know why we can't, I think he knows. He's a smart guy. We could, but we don't want to. I mean, somebody, I'll leave it to you, somebody has in their hands the power to tilt and tip close elections. And it's this business of boxes and late-arriving ballots and partially completed ballots and the, the, the nonsense of multiple format voting. You know, we have one election, but there's 28 different ways people vote. And there's people that vote on election day, and there's people whose ballots arrive after election day, and there's people that voted three weeks before the election. And it, it's insane. It should have been fought like the second American revolution when it was being instituted in 2020 Republicans, I think were trying to be good guys and show that they understood the severity of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And they rolled over on it and they got mugged in an alley and they didn't fight back. And then they got toasted in the 20 and 2022 elections. And they tried to relitigate those elections, especially Trump instead of saying, okay, you know what? We got to roll up our sleeves and make sure no further elections are conducted by these stupid, crooked rules and partisan administrators. But here we are just a few months away from the next one, and it looks like we're still on that playing field. He's The, the ATM uh, reference, I think, is brilliant. Everybody understands that. Everybody gets, oh, yeah, that's a kind of technology that is uber-reliable. It's... um something that we don't even think about. It keeps track of our of our money. It could certainly be networked and utilized in a way that would count votes. We have American Idol, we have, you know, we have we have all kinds of things that register votes in a massive nationwide way and then uh, no one's concerned about the uh, integrity of the results. I think he's right. But we also know we know why we're not doing it because somebody has power in their hands that they don't want to give up. We don't want to go back to elections that are um, surprising to everyone. 
what we have right now, I believe, are elections that when they happen are surprising to some people, but I also think there are people that knew and know. You know what I mean? So, By the way, on the ATM thing, i got to just digress for a minute. I am very late to this. I'm just now starting to watch the new season of Reacher. Do you watch Reacher? I read the Lee Child books. I'm a big fan of the Lee Child books, and Reacher is his character. And anyway, second season is on Prime. So I'm watching the first episode last night. And Reacher is this itinerant good guy that he doesn't have a house, he doesn't own anything, and he just wanders around and gets drawn into these situations where he has to kick the butt of the bad guys. Anyhow... To to get him, to reach him, pardon the pun, uh, this lady that he used to work with when he was a, an Army MP, she knows that the one thing Reacher does as he travels around the country uh, is he hits ATM machines every so often and withdraws some cash. So she purposely does some kind of transaction on his bank account. She's able to do this. She purposely like deposits some money and deposits it in a way and with amounts that spell out these numbers that when he sees it on the slip, he realizes that somebody from his old 110th, you know, MP uh, company is trying to get a hold of him. It's pretty cool. I don't know if he can actually do that or not in real life, but it was pretty cool to see it in a TV show. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel has said that his current contract with ABC for late-night hosting will be his last one. He believes that when the contract runs out in 2026, uh, he will be done with late-night TV. I'm not going to be sorry to see that happen, but anyway. uh, Jimmy Kimmel, therefore, will need to be replaced. We've talked about this. Late-night TV is becoming difficult, right? Its uh, audience has plunged. Its place in our heart has changed because the hosts have become very political. And look, everybody's free to be political. I'm political. The show's very political. But, you know, if if you're doing the late night, people watch it before they hit the sack kind of thing, I still believe, maybe I'm old fashioned, I still believe you should play it for laughs, put people at ease, be relaxing. You know, that's that's a show business tradition for a reason. No matter how much stuff changes, people want that. They want to laugh. So I wonder who you would replace Jimmy Kimmel with. Well, you know who wants the job? And I don't know. I mean, I I like this idea. This idea makes a lot of sense to me. And that's probably why it won't happen. But you know who's already got his antenna up hearing about this? Stephen A. Smith. ESPN. Same company. Uh, he is interested, uh, uh, reportedly. And I think I would watch that. He has told Sean Hannity in the past, in interviews, I am very interested in doing late night. I would like to be the heir apparent to one of these guys. Uh, I would throw everybody for a loop. I'd be fair to everybody. I'd listen to everybody. It wouldn't be one-sided. I am one-sided on issues. I'm not one-sided on ideology. I'm not sure what that means. But. Stephen A. Smith is one of those people, though. You know where he stands, but he can 
handle other people standing elsewhere on it. And and when he does carve out or stake out a position, and I'm a very fr- frequent uh, uh, watcher of Stephen A. Smith, I will say he surprises me on a regular basis. You don't always know uh, where he's going. So that would be, I would, I would tune that in. I would give that a try. I love this idea. I cannot believe more people are not doing this. Um, there is a new overnight radio show on KDKA in Pittsburgh, which is a KTSA type of operation. It's a local news talk radio station. I think, John, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think KDKA is the oldest or brands itself as the oldest radio station, right? I believe that's their claim to fame. There's a little bit of a dispute about which who came first and who's been on the longest continuously. And I worked for WGY and Schenectady in Albany, New York, which I believe was on the air ahead of KDKA, but I think KDKA has been on the air more continuously or something like that. So anyway, they're a news talk station, kind of like this one. And they've decided that their overnight show will be hosted by students, student broadcasters and journalists at the University of Pittsburgh. They're calling it KDKA Next Take. And uh, they started, uh, or either they started this week or next week. It's 1 to 5 a.m. It's a rotating uh, group of uh, journalism students producing it, hosting it. Um, And so they're going to have this opportunity to hone their craft, big stage, opportunity to put something different on overnight. And I think it's a great idea. My hat's off to them. like that very much. Because we we do wonder, we have these internal discussions in radio, this is a big thing. When you sit together with radio people at your station or when you go to like industry conferences, there's this big angst about where is the, what's the future. And the problem is the future of radio was always drawn from people who grew up listening to radio. When you don't have young people listening to radio anymore or as much or obligatory, where do you get the the next generation of talent? Well, here you go. Great idea. So just putting that out there. Who knows you might hear me say this. Who knows what might happen? Just thought I'd mention it. Just, you know, dropping it in the suggestion box of the airwaves. Today, a lot of people hit by the AT&T outage. Did that affect you is our question on the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery. 61% said no. 39% said yes. We'll have a new JR poll question tomorrow when we get started live at 4. Or you can find it anytime at KTSA.com. And, of course, this show is a podcast that you can find anytime at KTSA.com. Um, we counted down the top ten songs from this week in 1977. And the number one song was a song that... J.D. Souther had written the chorus and some of the lyrics for years before the Eagles sat down to work on Hotel California. He brought those notes with him, and they kind of put the rest together, and it led to the song that kicked off. It was the first single release for Hotel California back in 1976. It was the number one song this week in 1977, a song about the fickle nature of love and romance and success 
We leave you tonight on KTSA with New Kid in Town. There's talk on the street, it sounds so familiar. Great expectations, everybody's watching you. in her